Well, if you were here with us uh, last Sunday, you heard a sermon probably on a text that's rarely heard. And uh, it was a mighty sermon, gospel sermon, uh, with the, the aroma of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I was thinking about Kerry's comment at the beginning of that sermon last week when he quoted a liberal scholar who said, Genesis 38, the story of Judah and Tamar, I don't see what it's here for, doesn't have anything to do with this, it's some sort of scholarly, ancient injection into the text. And then we saw how it is part of the whole fiber and the way things are woven into Genesis, and it is ultimately about Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing we saw last time. Now, the Sunday before that, when your pastor, Kerry, preached on Genesis 37, it was the initial sermon on Joseph where we saw him sold into slavery, and uh, we saw a man who believed God's word and trusted God's word. Now, the interesting thing is, you take Joseph, who's so exemplary, you put Judah and Tamar and that story in the middle, and then you come to Joseph and what we're going to see in Joseph today. That story last week sort of makes Joseph's character shine. And that's what we're going to see this morning, an incredible, incredible account of Joseph in Egypt. Now, when young Joseph trudged brokenhearted down to Egypt as a tethered slave destitute of any human support without even a glimmer of external hope. We saw that and we saw a young man who from the world's point of view had plenty of reason to hate. I mean, big time. Joseph had been stripped of his clothing by his own brothers and tossed to a pit for a, a, a lingering death though he pleaded pitifully for mercy. And his execution was only averted when a caravan of Ishmaelites came by, saw him, they're going down to Egypt, and offered a few shekels for him, and there was an exchange, and he was a manacled slave going down to Egypt. He'd been a bright boy, Naive, perhaps, but godly with a bright future. But now, by all appearances, he's been abandoned both by God and by man. I mean, it is pitiful. And he possessed every human reason for distrust and bitterness. I mean, common worldly logic demanded he cherish and nurture thoughts of revenge. In fact, if you look at the story of his uncle Esau, you found that's what fed him during those years of conflict with Jacob. But Joseph made a remarkable choice, I mean an amazing choice, because as he shuffled in manacles in the dust down to Egypt, he elected to trust God. And ultimately, to forgive. And if you do kind of a biblical CAT scan of his soul, you see no malignancies anywhere in Joseph, this young man. 
No trace of the cancers of hatred, which have been evoked by such a thing. No cancer of bitterness. No vindictiveness, no matter how close you look. Instead, what you see in the account of Joseph, and really are awestruck, is that when years later we witnessed that Joseph and his brothers had his brothers in the palm of his hand. This is in Genesis 44 and 45, when every terror possible was at his right he could do. What did he do? He excused himself and wept and then came back and lavished them with gifts and with privilege. I mean, you have to look at this and you have to say, Joseph's soul is so extraordinary that even in the context of the greats of the Bible, he towers unique. In fact, he's kind of like a, a, a skyscraper on the plains of spiritual history. This is a towering giant of a man, a young man at this time. And what you have to do when you look at the story, you have to almost say, I'm not going to notice the hints of Jesus in here because it is full of Jesus. Because Jesus was sold for a few shekels and delivered up to death, right? Also, when suffering untold agonies, he forgave them and even forgives our sins today. And today, Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters. This whole thing just exudes the Lord Jesus. Joseph was a monumental giant of a man living thousands of years before Jesus and so much like him. This is what we have to see. Now that long trek to Egypt completed, Joseph descended into the storied Nile Valley. We've seen it in travel logs. Egypt's 15th dynasty was in full uh, orb, the 17th and 15th centuries BC, the Hyksos dynasty, a famous dynasty. And so he descends into that, and every morning the rising sun is greeted by the chanting of cultic hymns to awaken the gods of the Nile from their slumber. Uh, those uh, wooden gods and stone gods were then given their morning bath and then sumptuously dressed and breakfasted with morning offerings. And they were everywhere. I mean, the whole atmosphere was full of, of uh, pagan deities. There was Ta, the artificer, the uh, creator god of Memphis, Tha, the god of learning, the moon of Hermopolis, Amon, the hidden god of Thebes, and then there was Ray, the sun god, Nut, the sky goddess, and Shu and Geb, and Nu, the gods of the air. And along with this, there was a pervasive cult of Osiris in its cyclical observances with the annual rise and fall of the Nile. In fact, Pharaoh was considered to be a god himself, and you see it as a falcon named Horus. So it is an atmosphere just breathing idolatry. And all of this 
assaulted young Joseph when he is offered on the block in Egypt, stands there and blinking wonder, and then with a commercial nod, Joseph is cast into the dark, pulsing heart of this world in Egypt. He's 17 or 18 years old, so he's hardly experienced in the world. And so you see this in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And so Joseph, now sold, is in the epicenter of darkness, an aristocratic household where the rulers of the land came and went, a penthouse of wealth and opulence, and Egyptian culture. He's kind of on the Egyptian Riviera and the height of things. And here in Potiphar's house, the world, the destiny of that world is going to come to rest ultimately upon his shoulders. He'd sent something to the destiny in his dream when he knew his father's and and his mother and his brothers would one day bow down to him, but the immensity and scope of what was going to happen to him, where he was going to be as a, in a sense, at least a temporal savior of the world, he had no idea whatsoever what was going to happen with him. Now we know the story. And, and we know he's going to succeed spectacularly because we've heard it when we were children. But the question is, why did it happen? What enabled him to succeed in such a spectacular manner in Egypt? Well, as you probably know, the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife leaves no doubt as the answer because it states both in the beginning and the end, and this is what this is about. Joseph was successful because the Lord was with him. Now we're going to see what that with means. But that's why he was successful. And if you look at the beginning of it in verses 2 and 3, you'll see... The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was, what, with him, that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. It's bracketed right at the beginning by two mentions that the Lord is with him. You go to the very end of the account, it was read this morning, and you read in verse uh, 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him his steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And then if you look at the last verse in the text, verse 23, the last half, of, well, verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him to succeed. So the whole account says he succeeded because the Lord was with him. So what you want to understand, right at the beginning of the story, that the centerpiece of the story is God. 
who is present and working on Joseph's behalf. Now, there's also some things that you might not notice right at first here. Most importantly, that the God who is with Joseph is the Lord. Do you see it capitalized there in, in verse 2? You see where it says the Lord in caps? The Lord in caps occurs eight times in this account. It doesn't occur again in the whole rest of the story of Joseph. It's the Lord, Yahweh, who is here, the covenant name of the Lord. And it's Moses, the narrator, who's telling us the reason he succeeded is that Yahweh was with him. The covenant God of Israel. So we're to understand that at the most uncertain time in Joseph's life when he could see nothing of God, the covenant God of Israel was worked to bring out his covenant promises to him. God is with him. Yahweh, the Lord, is with him. He's not alone. And he's going to affect a mighty work for his covenant people. So, no surprise. Joseph has spectacular success in elevation. And this is in verse 4 through 6. So Joseph found favor in the sight of in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and he put him in charge of all that he had from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had the lord blessed the egyptian's house for joseph's sake the blessing of the lord was on all that he had in his house and field so he left all that he had in joseph's charge and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So what happened is his work ethic didn't go unnoticed, and so he became Potiphar's personal attendant and then overseer of everything. That's very interesting. Because in promoting him and honoring Joseph, the blessing fell upon Potiphar's house. And uh, it tells us in Genesis 12, 3, that I will bless those that bless you. And so blessing multiplies in Potiphar's house. And Joseph is such a super slave that Potiphar realized the best way to manage his affairs is to forget him. Just let him do it. Leave everything to Joseph. And he did. Everything except his food. Because... Uh, of ritual separation at mealtime among Egyptians. That was the only thing that wasn't left to Joseph. Otherwise, everything was literally in Joseph's hand. That's what the Hebrew says when it says Joseph's in charge, meaning Joseph's power. He was, he was so confident in Joseph, he left everything, even the care of his wife. Well, tough life for old Potiphar. I mean, I think that, that Joseph was the envy of all the masters of the Egyptian Riviera. They said, man, I wish I had a, a, a servant like Joseph. So he is at the pinnacle of power in Potiphar's penthouse estate. 
And there is no doubt in this story that God is with him. He was handsome. I mean, almost supernaturally handsome. It tells us in verse 6, the end of verse 6, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And evidently was in the genes. Same phrase is used of his lovely mother, Rachel, in Genesis 29, 17, where it says, she was beautiful in form and appearance and says, he's handsome in form and appearance, exactly the same Hebrew. That, uh, and and they're, the only, they're the only people in scripture that has this double praise of being beautiful or handsome in form and appearance. I mean, he must have been something. You know, the, the Jewish uh, publication society has this paraphrase that Joseph was well-built and handsome. So I can imagine him in his uh, Egyptian kilt, tan, broad shoulders, cut, steel abs. <laughs> I mean, this is the picture of him. And here's where the story turns, because for all his gifts, Joseph suffers one endowment too many. He's just too plain, handsome, and desirable. Now, here in Scripture is the prototype of all fatal attractions. Verse 7, and you see it. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Well, lust-filled men and women are as old as the world and privileged sensualists, those who have every desire catered to, often become demanding and out of control. And rich, privileged, pampered, Mrs. Potiphar was used to giving what she wanted. And after all, he's only a slave. Actually, I think the real slave is Mrs. Potiphar. But what an insidious temptation. Joseph is 17 or 18 years old. All of his hormones are in full force. The rationalizations are so easy and logical, no one would ever know. His family would certainly never find out. They are, in a sense, on the other side of the world from him. And then he's a slave. His life's not his own. And sexual promiscuity and incest was just sure among slave, slaves and slave population. That just went all the time. It was just all around him. And besides, by giving in to Mrs. Potiphar's wishes, he could enhance his career, right? It's a time-honored political strategy in the past and in today. And besides, what's so wrong with a little discreet adultery if it furthers your cause? And face it, old Potiphar was gone all the time and he wasn't meeting her needs. She's entitled to a little caring affection. I mean, this is actually the loving thing to do. 
In today's terms, this situation demands this love ethic, right? You see it? And even more, who could blame him anyway? Man, it's in his blood. Look at his brother Reuben and his incest with his father's wives. Well, we just talked about Judah. It's in his blood. So why not? I had a friend uh, named Andrew Smutzer who wrote on this and he explains, add to this the fact that Joseph knew the dysfunction of a father's favoritism, the scorn of 10 brothers' hatred, the betrayal of being sold for profit by those responsible for him, the disdain of a slave's life as chattel, and the disillusion, the coming apart that happens with transplantation to foreign soil and culture. With this in his bio, Joseph had every reason to be angry, bitter, resentful, cynical, fearful, self-serving, self-pitying. Joseph had every reason to find fleeting solace in the illicit embrace, frankly, to act out. Who could blame him? Well, Joseph wasn't going for it. And Mrs. Potiphar's, it's a three-word proposition in the English, but it's two words in Hebrew. Her two-word proposition is met with a 35-word refusal. One of the great speeches in Scripture. This is verses 8 and 9. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that is in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How then? Can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So in short, he refused her because of the trust given to him, because of his obligation to her husband, and to God himself. Now, I think what you, you see, when you look at Joseph's life, you're going to see this life over the next weeks. His Integrity was of one fabric. And because he was faithful in all his relationships, he could resist being unfaithful in this instance. And what you see is this story is not just about sexual fidelity, because Joseph's life was a tapestry of moral accountability. He saw his moral life as a unified integrated form. Maybe not those words, but he knew that it was an integrated form. His overall faithfulness in all of life had helped him reject this massive temptation. And what you need to understand is that the little sins are the ones that enable the big sins to get us. It's not just a little thing. And there is a, a great power in a life where the that is empowered by this type of consistency. 
Now, of course, the greatest deterrent to falling to sexual siege was Joseph's awareness that God was with him. Not because of the narrator's voice overlay that we have in Moses, but because this is what God had repeatedly promised Joseph's fathers, and he had particular awareness of this in his life. The grand deterrent to Joseph's not falling to this incredible temptation was his awareness that God sees all. Everything. And that a sin that no one knows about, committed behind locked doors in a dark room, is actually done in the very presence of a holy God. Uh, And he believed this. I mean, that's what his words say. I'm convinced that this, this personal realization is one of the strong, is perhaps the strongest deterrent to sin that other people don't know about. It's, it's fascinating that when King David sinned with Bathsheba, this is after that, he gives the realization of where sin is located. This is Psalm 51, 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He knew what he'd done with Bathsheba. He knew what he'd done with Uriah. But it was the sin in the presence of God that he came to understand. Well, Joseph is awesome. Great speech, Joseph. But the lady isn't given up. Verse 10. And as she spoke to him, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. So her her dialogue plumbed every angle with the guy. He paid no heed. And then when she moderated her demands, just lie beside me, he gave her wide berth. I'm reminded here of a story that uh, it's got a little bit of a smile in it, but uh, a mother who bakes uh, wonderful cookies for her family, and then she puts them in the cookie jar all warm and hot, and uh, she walks in the other room, and when she walks in the other room, she hears the lid of the cookie jar move. And she said to her son, because she knew it, says, Johnny, what are you doing? He said, my hand's in the cookie jar. Resisting temptation. <laughs> well, he never let himself get near the cookie jar. His actions are parabolic and instructed to every man and woman who wants to be sexually pure. And here it is. Today's Mrs. Potiphar's are both material and phantasmal and ubiquitous on airbrush photos, celluloid, internet videos, and luminous TV screens in basements. And those who are wise refuse to lie beside her or be with her. In other words, to keep the cookie jar, stay away. Well, perhaps Joseph had seen it coming. 
but he is 17, 18 years old. But there's little he could do in that he had to carry on his, his work within the household. In any event, Mrs. Potiphar's ambush caught him unawares, verses 11 and 12. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. I mean, there's kind of a, a surprising violence. There's kind of a struggle. His tunic would be like a long t-shirt. She got a hold of that and he wrestled out of it. So the poor guy is running basically on naturel out of the house. You know, this is a good example of biblical cowardice. This is a good thing. God is looking for an army of good cowards. Well, Mrs. Potiphar is a skilled liar. Uh, the Old Testament scholar Robert Alters, uh, uh, Robert Alters says uh, she was a subtle mistress of syntactic equivocation because she tailed tailored her lies first to enlist the servant's support and then altered them to incite her husband. So earlier, Potiphar had left all they had in Joseph's hand, and now Mrs. Potiphar has his tunic in her hand. But never mind. The scorned woman assembled the men of her household, and she just kind of disgorged herself. You see it in verses 14 to 15, middle of verse 15. See he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I heard that I lifted up, as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. You know, the, her, these are presidential lies. Never a mention of his being a Hebrew till now. You know, xenophobia. Egyptians didn't like Hebrews. And in preparation for her husband, she arranged Joseph's garment beside her and effected a ravish swoon, telling her husband, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought into the house came into me to laugh at me, not just us. But as soon as I lifted my voice and cried, he left this garment beside me and fled out of the house. So the Hebrew is now a Hebrew slave, and he's laughing at me, and you brought him into the house. Come on, Potiphar, do something. Well, her lies worked to some extent. And you read it in verses 19 and 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners are confined. And he was there in prison. Apparently, Potiphar was not completely convinced by his wife because he'd had him executed on the spot. But he put him in prison, perhaps thinking maybe other information would come to light. After all, he kind of knew his wife. Well, what an astounding turn of events. You're in the pit in Shechem sold by your brothers. 
You go to the pinnacle on the Egyptian Riviera as your faithful servant of Potiphar, and now you're back in the pit, an Egyptian pit, an Egyptian prison in 1500 BC as a manacled prisoner. Whoa. Psalm 105 comments on this. Verses 16 and 17 describes Joseph's incarceration. Joseph was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until it had come to pass the word of the Lord tested him. I mean, you can imagine a, uh, an Egyptian prison in that day and you've got an iron collar on and shackles around your feet. But what a towering figure he'd become. Because never once in prosperity or adversity had Joseph doubted God. And more, he had sensed and appropriated God's presence in every circumstance. In the pinnacle and in the pit. And he'd never been more successful than now. In the pit. In fact, he dwarfs those monuments on the Nile. He stands higher than the pyramids, friends. This is one of the great, great men of all time. Well, again, Joseph does not hear the narrator's words, which twice declare that Yahweh, Jehovah, is with him. Moses saying, Jehovah's with him and that he's success. But here's what it says in verses 21 through 23. But the Lord, Yahweh, was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything who was in Joseph's charge, just like Potiphar had been. And because the Lord was with him, do you see that? And whatever he did, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord made him succeed. Everything could see, everyone could see that the Lord was with Joseph. But Joseph had never stopped seeing it. He'd seen it when he was in the pit that the Lord was with him. He saw the Lord was with him in the pit house. He saw the Lord was with him with Mrs. Potiphar. He now sees it in the prison house. And that is why he is and will always be an astonishing success. And this is where his life intersects ours today very powerfully and substantially. And I'd like you to turn to a Christmas text as we conclude. This is Matthew, first chapter, verses 20 and 21. Now here it is. Matthew... 1, 20 and 21. Upon the con conception of Christ the Messiah in the womb of the Virgin Mary, 
The angel Gabriel came and explained to Joseph, and I'm reading from verse 20 in the middle of the verse, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So he says, you're going to call his name Jesus. Well, Jesus is a combination of two names, Yahweh and saves, salvation. That's what Jesus means, or Yahweh saves, or the Lord saves. Same word for the Lord as is in Genesis 39. Jesus is a divinely given name in combination of two names. In this respect, to the patriarch Joseph, Jesus is Yahweh the Lord who was with Joseph and gave him great success. He says eight times. Now look on in the text. Look back and below. Look at verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Now, if you look in your text, you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh, God with us who saves us, and Jesus is Emmanuel. But the beauty of all this goes beyond all of this because in the incarnation, he became one of us. He took on flesh. We do not have a priest who cannot uh, sympathize with our feelings because he was tempted in all ways like as we without sin. So he became one of us. He is the Lord, Yahweh, and he is Emmanuel, God with us. So when I, when I think about the, the sanctifying, day-to-day power of this text, the dynamic truth that the Lord is with us, that Yahweh was with us, the incarnate Christ is with us, and he is with us now. I mean, if you really allow that to sink in, you really allow that to sink in, not just go, okay, but really allow that to sink in. That is an elevating truth. A thousand years ago, 12th century, there was a a preacher by the name of Hildebert. Hildebert of Laverdin. And he celebrated this And it's almost like a rap song. God is over all things, under all things, outside all, within but not enclosed, without but not excluded, above but not raised up, below but not depressed, holy above presiding, holy outside embracing, holy within filling. That's the reality that He's everywhere and that he's with us and with his children that he died for, that he lives for, that he will resurrect. Brothers and sisters, in a world 
with all kinds of things swirling around, all the cookie jar temptations of this world, the Lord is with his children. May that sanctifying, beautiful truth grace all our souls. God, will you honor your word in our lives? Amen.